Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today I'm delighted to welcome Shira Foyer, the Chief Marketing Officer for the direct-to-consumer beauty brand Trini London. Founded by Trini Woodall in 2017 with the aim of giving women the tools to be their best, the company is now one of Europe's fastest growing beauty brands. So Shira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It's, it's a joy. I understand you joined from Disney. Is that right? Um, how, how, how did you find the transition and what did you discover when you first moved to Trini London? Well, I had a, I was in a few other startups before, so I went Disney to startups in general. And then so I had a little bit of startup experience uh, over a few years, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge transition to go from a company as big as Disney to startup world. I mean, I love it. I, I love Disney. I think it's, I still think it's probably one of the best brands in the world. I think it's, I mean, what they've built is unbelievable, but I do love the pace of startups um, and it suits my nature. So, um, so it's been great. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, no, I mean, I, I have to say, I think that um, uh, I spent a lot of time in my early career working on American Express and I always think that American Express and Disney are the two brands that really get customer experience. Oh, yeah. Um, they, you know, they, they understand actually customer first psychology probably better than anybody else. And it's also one of those brands where you have the opportunity to work on absolutely everything. Yeah. I think it's an absolutely fantastic place to start in the sense that it, it is absolutely a sort of soup to nuts marketing education. And, um, and so startup world appealed to you. I can understand why. Um, what did you find? What what really appealed to you about Trini London? Because it is an astonishing story and that it is a, I mean, I suppose you could argue, let's be purists here, okay? It was built partly on the back of fame, which was generated on television. I mean, um, yeah. yeah. We, we, sh- we, should, we shouldn't deny that, that yeah. actually without big television, uh, no one would have heard of Trini, perhaps. But nonetheless, it's a digital first brand and it's a direct consumer brand. Um, uh, what did you... What particularly drew you to it in the first place? Well, it's, I mean, you've touched on exactly of, of what, you know, it, it, I was skeptical in the, in the beginning because 
the number of famous people starting beauty brands, like my team and I used to joke about it, but it's gotten to a point. I saw some data on it recently. It's it's truly ridiculous. Like how many how many famous people think they can start a beauty brand? No, I'm I'm, I'm thinking of doing one of my. <laughs> I mean, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I came in and I was just like, oh, is another famous person doing it again?" And in all honesty, I tried the products and I didn't expect to like them, and I liked them so much that I bought them, and I was like, "Okay." interesting. Um, and then I went and I met with Trini and she had a real strategy that the kind of strategy, there's a lot of people who want to be startup founders who don't have strategies like this. They're not thinking long-term. They don't have a vision like this. So I was kind of very pleasantly surprised. That's the honest truth, because I thought that here's, here's another celebrity slapping their name on a product. And that's not what it was at all. Trini is very, very deeply involved with product development. And she has a real vision for, for what she wants this company to be and what she wants it to stand for. So regardless of her origins, you know, she's, she's like a powerhouse business person. And, um, and that's the kind of person I, I want to work with. So yeah, I went in being like, there's a lot to play with here. There's great products. There's great opportunities for marketing. And uh, and there was. So, yeah, so far, so good. And it's it is it's worth noting that it is distinctive in that it is digital first, in that it does two things, I suppose. Uh, one of them is obviously the Trini tribes, mm-hmm. which is uh, a very potent sort of social media um, force. And then you, you also have the match to me function, which does something which actually... I, th- I think rather distinctively, it does something which you can't really do offline, although some fashion brands have tried it, obviously, in-store personalization of makeup. And obviously, you can do it with human beings. Yep. But it, it is noticeable that Match to Me does something um, and is a distinguishing feature. The other, I suppose the other feature is, which, which perhaps arises from Match to Me, is that you cover a far greater range of, say, skin colors and, um, uh, and types. Yep. that I think most con- cosmetics brands do. Is that fair? I mean, I think in general, the beauty industry is getting better. So yeah. I think we are seeing an improvement. But yeah, I mean, Match to Me is great because, I mean, it's, well, it's, even without Match to Me, it's just offering a range, a good selection of, of product shades, which the business does. I mean, inclusion is is one of our core values as a business, not just about skin tone, but about age for example, you know, you don't see a lot of older women in marketing when it comes to the beauty industry. So that's really important to us as well. So Match to Me leverages that. But the fact is that we have the selection to begin with. Um, and but but yeah, I mean, I would say over the last few years, we've seen in general the beauty industry has improved. So that's been really great to see across the board. And uh, d- would you would you say that your I mean perhaps your user imagery is slightly older than most cosmetics brands, but actually I always say it's very it's a dangerous mistake to confuse user imagery with with actual target audience. Uh, demographically, does is that reflected in your customer base, or do you find, as I quite often do, that actually this is very Byron Sharp? Actually, your customer base is always much much broader than you think it is. Is that fair that you actually go up and down the age ranges? perhaps more than you expected even? I think so, yeah. I think um, we do reach quite a broad audience target, but we do make an, more of a concerted effort to reach, like, the you know, as a, as a core audience, 35 to 55-year-old women who, you know, in an industry that is absolutely obsessed with youth and making you look younger, it's, it is unusual. Um, and we work with 
you know, it's not a lot of professional models, it's actual women, because we're a digital business primary, you know, at, at our heart. So you need to show people what the, what the makeup is going to look like on their face. And if you just use the most stunning supermodels, like that's not relatable to most people. So we want to be able to actually show like what you see is what you get. And this is what it looks like on a regular person that you can relate to. So in addition to Match to Me, we have a lookbook on the website where there's, I think, over 80, maybe over 100 models. I can't remember now. But we're, And when I say models, I mean people that we call models. Um, and uh, so even if you don't do Match to Me, you can very quickly look on there and find someone that you relate to. Um, so it is, it's really important to us to get that across because... That's that's what has worked for us. Honestly, people relate to the fact that we aren't trying to be something that's unattainable. We're trying to say, okay, if you buy our BFF SPF Skin Perfector, this is what it actually does. This is what it's actually going to do for you. And then you're, the expectations are there. So um, that's that's been, I think, our biggest differentiator is we don't over Photoshop. We don't we don't position things in a way that that's unattainable or unrealistic. So um, that's, that's been really important to us. And of course your use of non-professional models means <laughs> that you can cover just an enormous range of Absolutely. skin types and appearances rather than ba- basically betting the farm on uh, one or two absurdly expensive people. Yeah. Um, very true. Yeah. So no, I mean, I always, I always love this phrase that the opposite of a good idea is another good idea. And I think, where you've distinguished yourself is you've done, uh, you've taken quite a few things because it's a very, very conformist category historically, oh, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I've yeah. worked a little bit on Dove and that did the same thing it, effectively when everybody else zigs, zag. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it, it, it's an incredibly conformist industry. Do you find, by the way, there's a particular characteristic that uh, marks out the online cosmetics buyer as distinct from, uh, I mean, you are online only, is that right? No, we, we do you, sell in person in it. We have a few retail locations. Uh, um, it's definitely the minority of the business at the moment, certainly. Um, I expect that to remain true. Even as we grow physical retail, I think that we are, we're digital first because we get to reach a wider audience that way. And so much of our marketing is digital content. So it makes sense. Um, but in terms of the difference between customers, I think that sometimes in some, we see a difference in different markets. So it's been really interesting, for example, in Germany, where we expected, you know, our core customer to be a 50 year old woman in Munich, but actually we're selling much more to a 25 year old in Berlin. And the reason I think that is happening there, I think in the German market, they really do want to try products potentially a little bit more than some other countries. So that 25-year-old in Berlin might be a little bit more willing to to take a risk and and give it a shot. And it's something that as we become more established, I hope we build that trust more and more. And maybe we will have retail there and and we're taking a look. But you see some different behaviors around the world. In general, we're lucky because we have very strong word of mouth and social proof. So for a customer that historically may be bought in store, she can look and she can see, you know, there's a lot of great reviews about various products and, and it gives her the, the trust factor. Um, and then once she tries it and she loves it, great, then we're good. But yeah, I mean, for sure, given who we target, we target an audience that many of them historically will have bought in store. So it's, you know, our lower hanging fruit are the people who are more willing to try and buy in the first place online. But then we have had a lot of success in reaching that wider audience. And to be honest, COVID 
was positive for e-commerce in many ways, which is horrible to say, but it is the truth because a lot of people who might not have bought online, they couldn't buy in a store. So they just did. So, you know, for us, we were able to introduce ourselves maybe to some more of those customers who would have been a bit more hesitant before. And then they saw, actually, this is a great experience. So, um, it's shifting, you know, we're seeing it shift. And I think pretty soon there will not be much of a difference between the two. I think the difference does still exist for sure. Um, but it's, it's evolving. How, how do you deliver actually? What, what delivery couriers do you use and how quickly do you deliver generally? Uh, we use a few different couriers around the world, but it's really fast delivery. We, that's, that's one thing. Um, I mean, I'm not an ops person, but, uh, what I've seen customers saying all the time, you know, people in Australia saying, they got their shipment that came from the UK in like two days or the US, similar thing. So um, credit to our ops team. They make that happen really fast. But yeah, with diff- different careers in different countries. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that uh, well, I mean, one of the one of the mistakes I think that's often made in e-commerce is that delivery falls under ops, not marketing. Mm. But actually, in many cases, it's a decisive factor, particularly in repeat purchase, probably isn't measured nearly often enough. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting because I've, I've always argued, interestingly, that uh, all e-commerce brands make a mistake by not offering wider choices of delivery. In other words, someone in ops has basically, you know, assigned a contract with somebody which depends on bulk use. And the consumer, who in many cases is paying for delivery, okay, is given no choice or very little choice over who delivers it. And yeah. I've always I, that's always struck me as a, a essentially it, it, it's a long it's a short term saving at the price of long term loyalty. I think in some cases it's a really interesting point. I mean, I guess that again, the reason I love startups is because we're small, so we all talk to each other all the time anyway. Exactly. So yeah. It, that's the benefit. If the, if we were you know a giant conglomerate, it would probably look a little bit different. But right now, you know, we talk to ops every day, so it's you know we're we're in a, a good position. Hopefully, we'll keep it that way. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is one of the great things that distinguishes smaller businesses, which is these cross silo conversations take place all the time. Yeah. Whereas I noticed dealing with larger businesses, I used to have a theory when I was a creative director, I said, if ever you present an idea which requires your client to talk to someone in a different department to make yeah. it happen, it will never happen. Absolutely. And um, that was always something rather depressing about working with large corporates. Yeah. I mean, do explain, actually, for the benefit of listeners, because I'm conscious of the fact that I've, you know, I've obviously spent some time on the website. Um, the match to me um, part of the website, if you want to explain to listeners how, exactly how it works, that'd be quite worthwhile, I think, because they may sure. not be familiar with the website. Absolutely. So Match to Me for Makeup um, basically asks for your skin, hair and eye combination. So you you answer some very basic questions. Um, and the point being that the right makeup for you is not based only on your skin tone, but actually this combination of the three. And that's going to give you the best options. So then it serves up the best options for you. And we've had huge success and we have a huge proportion of people who buy use Match to Me because it gives them that confidence to buy online. We've recently launched skincare and we will have a skincare match to me coming out at some point in time. Um, so we're excited for that too. And it's, you know, right now we're launching skincare in chapters. So it's quite easy to be very honest with you to, to choose the right skincare products right now. But as we get more and more products, there's going to be additional value from offering this personalization. And it's going to go even further than, than what has, what we have with makeup where, you know, there's, it's going to share 
more than just product recommendations. So, um, so we're really excited uh, for that as well, because Match to Me has been really, really important for us as a digital first brand and um, personalization. And just, I mean, really personalization is such an overused buzzword, isn't it? Whereas like, it's not really about that. It's just convenience and it's ease and it's trust. And that's what we're trying to build here. And the other great thing of personalization online is it's choice reduction to some extent mm-hmm. in that one problem. I mean, you can see this in online clothing, for example. Um, uh, you know, what, what, one thing I noticed about buying online clothing, <coughs> this might be me being a bloke, okay? But I quite frequently go to the outlet or sale um, part of the website, not so much to save money, but just to reduce the baffling profusion of choice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I need some arbitrary thing here, which just reduces this choice to some manageable level. Yeah. Um, the paradox of choice is definitely true in, 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 in skincare and cosmetics, I think. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, one of the things that we changed with match to me when I joined, there's a lot, there are still a lot of options everybody can get. And something that we added in was this sort of core. These are, these are, if you, you know, are only get five, five, going to get five or six things. Look at these, because even for me, when I did it, I was like, even though it's refined, there's still a lot of stuff in here. So we want to make it as easy for that customer as possible to, to, especially when they're buying for the first time, to really feel confident that they're going to get something that they love. And then what we tend to find, I mean, what's been amazing about the the way the the packaging was created. So we have a stack and uh, I think what they inadvertently kind of stumbled upon when they created the stack and makeup is that people like to add to the stack. They like to build it like Lego. And um, so once people are in and they love the products, there is a slightly addictive nature to it, which is why our lifetime value is very, very high because people get really into it and they love it. So the more we can harness that as we grow, you know, the better. So, so what it is, is that there's a natural kind of brand loyalty in that, uh, to, to male listeners, this is like hi-fi separates, that you have the instinctive feeling that something from the same brand complements something else from the same brand. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And but then- it, I mean, it's like, it's a physical thing where you like, I'm, I'm showing the stack right now, but you, you literally yeah. are building like it's, it is like, it's this weird psychological thing. It's fantastic. I couldn't, I couldn't have come up with this. It was this sort of inadvertent wonderful serendipitous thing that it's like people just get really into building a stack. And we do, we do something in, in my team called the Trini Awards once a year. And one of the categories we do, it's, it's to celebrate UGC um, for the brand and we do tallest stack and it's wild. The submissions that we get of people who have like, like five foot tall, or I think even tall, we've had taller ones than that. Like that's how many products they've bought to build their stack to just be ridiculous. And it's incredible. It's incredible the loyalty we see and the fun people have with the products. And that was that was a packaging idea, effectively. Very, very, actually beautifully simple, but elegant packaging idea. Did yep. that come from a packaging agency or? No, that was Trini. That was Trini. That was Trini. So, it was you know, when she when she came up with this, she wanted to um, just sort of refine and curate the makeup bag. So traditionally, we all have these makeup bags that are just a big mess. And yes. she would travel all over the world in the work she was doing at the time. You know, so she was focused more on fashion, but actually she was very, very into beauty and into makeup. And she would buy these little pots and she would like crush up her makeup into it. And she she would do that personally. And she was like, there's something in this because it was something that worked for her. She's like, I think this would work for other people. So that was very much Trini's vision for for what it would be. I have to say that's a piece of genius, which is making the products effectively physically complement each other. 
yep. and creating yep. effectively a sort of system yeah. uh, rather than selling everything one at a time. And when you think about it, it's an extraordinary failure of the cosmetics industry uh, that it never thought of doing that beforehand. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But, you know, that was Trini's opportunity and uh, it's worked pretty well. I've got to ask, how do you launch in a company like Germany where perhaps brand recognition is a little bit less? Um, uh, how, how did you actually get started in new markets of that kind? Is, so, it, is it PR driven very heavily or? Yes and no. Uh, so we start, we look at our Trini tribes around the world. So we have these, these tribes, they're Facebook groups of women. We've got a global one and then we have regional ones. And the regional ones are the ones growing at a very high rate because the truth is that the sense of community is greater when it's more local and when it's smaller. So um, the global one's still great too, but we really see the growth in the small ones. So we have one for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And it was, you know, this is all organic. This is, this is people who are fans of the brand and fans of Trini who are building this and then just galvanizing word of mouth. And so um, we saw the opportunity through, we were getting a certain number of sales organically because we've shipped worldwide for a while. And so we saw that Germany was an opportunity market. Um, we saw the tribe had real legs. And so we, yeah, we hired a PR agency on the ground. Uh, we localized our site. Currently the only local language we uh, transcreate into is German, even though we sell globally. Um, and we run advertising uh, digitally. Um, so primarily Facebook and Instagram in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Um, and it's going really well. So it's, I mean, the, the thing is with, with language is it's a lot of work, a lot of work to change the language, not just on the site, but all the assets that go with it. So, um, you know, we can't do it everywhere. I would love to do it everywhere, but we we view Germany as a, a real opportunity. So that's why we started with that. Have you been have you been badly affected by the Apple moves to effectively default to higher levels of privacy, which makes say Facebook targeting much, much harder to perfect? Or have you been, you know, largely immune to that? We're definitely not immune to it and nobody in e-commerce is immune to it. Um, we're lucky because we have such a strong retained customer base and such strong word of mouth and we aren't dependent on Facebook advertising. That being said, we still do a lot of it. Um, and so we've been navigating the sort of post iOS 14 world the same way all e-commerce brands have. Um so definitely it's been a thing for sure. Um, we're in a pretty good place now, um, but there was a few months when it was really hitting where it was absolutely an issue. And we did pull back spend for a bit so we could try and figure it out, but now we're kind of on the other side of that. Um, so in short, yes, it affected us, but it, it, it was okay because we've got a lot of other channels. I have to say, you know, as a, um, uh, as a 20-year as a direct marketing veteran or 30-year direct marketing veteran, it did strike me as alarming the extent to which uh, many, many brands were happy with the black box solution of Facebook um, in that it brought in continual incremental improvements in sales efficiency. But the price, the hidden price you were paying is that you knew nothing about who your customers were. And so there's that terrifying danger, I think, with any of those black box algorithms or where you surrender targeting to a third party. I mean, half the value of direct marketing is what you learn. It's not what you sell. Yeah. And I think I think people were too happy to sort of, you know, uh, to take the crack cocaine of continual efficiency improvements and, and effectively trade valuable information for it. 
Um, and it, yep. it, it effectively makes you extremely vulnerable because, as I said, well, it, it, you know, it could be one software decision, as in Apple's case with iOS 14. It could be one piece of legislation equally, mm-hmm. which suddenly leaves people completely stranded. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the the reality is the idea of cookies and following people around the Internet is going away. And that's that is just the, the future that we live in for any platform. So we have to all be prepared for that. And we can't, you know, privacy regulations and laws are changing. And that's a good thing for the consumer. So I don't want to be afraid of that. Um, and it's really about how much data can you then collect on the other side so that you can know your customer. So regardless of where they're coming from, you can get to know them better. And and how much data do you have in your own database? I mean, with Match to Me, we have a mountain of data about our customers in, in terms of what they look like. And with Skincare Match to Me, you know, it's going to be even more and that's great. It's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because it's a better it's a better experience for the customer, but it's like, okay, where are the opportunities for you to be able to learn and optimize off the back of what you're learning? And you're not going to get that from the Facebook ad platform, platform that is for sure. Um, so where can you get it otherwise? And how can you build your own database that isn't just asking for customer data to be annoying, but actually adds value to them? So, so that's what we think about all the time. I mean, it is interesting. I think one of the things actually in marketing and in the boardroom, which we hope will be a beneficial outcome of COVID, is that conversations about resilience uh, will will resurface mm-hmm. in that we've had this naive period of 20 or 30 years of what I think my friend Asim Talib calls naive optimization, mm-hmm. which is that you simply optimize what is short term expediency. And you don't even ask questions. I mean, the same thing is happening, of course, with uh, employees. You yeah. know, it, we spent 25 years effectively assuming that employees were, uh, you know, that talented people were abundant and infinitely replaceable. Yeah. And it's yeah. taken us 20, it had taken us a pandemic to wake up to the fact that actually that isn't necessarily true. Yep. Um, and how, how many employees do you have, interestingly? I think we're around 200. I don't know the exact number, but we've grown a lot. When I joined it, we were 30 and now we're around 200. So it's, it's been crazy. Um, yeah. Just to see, you know, so the, the floor in our office, which used to be our, the only floor we had in the building that used to be the whole company. And now it's my team and we can't really fit. So it's, it's pretty crazy to see how that's happened. Uh, I always ask this question. Do you, do you work flexibly or do you, uh, now uh, is, uh, do you see hybrid working as the new normal or? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Um, yeah. I think that there is value in being in person when it makes sense. And there is value from working with working from home. Um, for me, I'm really quite adamant if we're going to be in the office, like I live an hour away from my yeah. office. So if I'm going to spend two hours on the tube every day, there, if I go in and I sit in a meeting room and I'm on Zoom calls all day, it makes me mad. So I don't want to do that. So what we try and do is we have teams come in on set days where, you know, 90% of your meetings, then you can do them in person. We are, so in our company right now, we're doing this walking challenge with. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Me and Trini are both a little bit too into, we're very competitive about it. But what it's meant is that when we come in, so if my team comes in on Wednesday, if we're doing one-to-ones, we go for a walk. And that's great that we can do that. So if we're going to come in, there needs to be a reason. And it's having that interaction in person, not coming in to tick a box and then sit on a call. So I'm very, and I do think my team has been unbelievably productive at home and I don't want to lose that. So it's finding the right balance. And if you're going to go in, there needs to be a purpose. And if there isn't a purpose, then you shouldn't do it. So I'll give you one tip, which I'll share with with you and all the listeners, which I think is one of the best tips I've heard about um, flexible and hybrid working, which comes from Professor Paul Dolan at the London School of Economics. And he's a great behavioral economist and also a pupil of Daniel Kahneman. And his tip is very simple. Go into the office probably one more day per week than you would if entirely left to your own devices. Mm. So he said, just as you know, sometimes you force yourself to go to a party and it turns out to be more valuable and enjoyable than you expect. He says, we're not very good hedonic forecasters. And so when in doubt, we'll tend to take the lazy option. He certainly doesn't say go in every week. But he says, probably if you're not sure whether to go in, go in, but otherwise don't. Yeah. I think I I thought that I thought that was quite a useful little corrective because we probably we've probably gone from a world of absurd presenteeism to a world of slightly excessive absenteeism. And even Mm -hmm. I, as a huge kind of, you know, evangelist for new modes of working. I mean, it simply made, as as you said, it made no sense for me to people to struggle in on a crowded tube and then spend three hours looking at emails. I mean, what was all that about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Okay. You know, if you come into the office, do things you can only do in the office. Um, And so that's very interesting. That strikes me as uh, you you seem to have got that absolutely right. And you seem to have exactly, as you said, the staff who can be maximally productive uh, if you let them work from home some of the time. Absolutely. My team has been, I mean, they blew me away, especially when we were in like full-blown lockdown, the productivity. So at the beginning of it, um, we started doing like team calls every morning, first thing in the morning. And in all honesty, I admit the reason I did it was like, I don't know if people are going to get up in the morning and work. And what I saw very quickly was that was ridiculous. And people were working 
much harder and much more productively and efficiently. And so, um, so even now, like, I don't like the word absenteeism, but they're not absent. We're on Slack all day long. I know they're there. We, you, you can reach people just as easily. I mean, I was in the office the other day and I kept like having to get up and like look around for people on the other side of the room. And it was like taking me longer than if I had Slack someone at home. So I think that People are very present. And if you treat people like grownups, they'll act like grownups. And that's that's really important. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, by the way. I, I think that uh, uh, people respond effectively to implicit cues. Mm-hmm. And uh, and showing people effective trust means they become trustworthy. Yeah. Uh, it it yeah. really does work that way around. I mean, the other thing I think is important, which is a point I, I keep making, is that from a marketing point of view, there are two questions. Do we want our staff to work flexibly? But there's another question, which is, do we want our customers to be able to work flexibly? Mm. And my argument is, if we can reduce the amount of money people have to spend on unwanted transportation and also actually on real estate, because you're much freer in terms of where you can live if you don't have to commute in five days a week. That's quite a lot of money. Yeah. Quite a lot of impulse purchase, I would add. Okay, because I don't know if do you notice a bit of a surge in in, uh, shopping at the end of the working day? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, And we saw that that shift in when people were purchasing during lockdown. We saw a big shift in that. So, yes, that was very, very evident in the data. I suspect there's a strong dose of to quote L'Oreal because I'm worth it. It's now because we're worth it, which I think dilutes it. But anyway, don't worry about that. Um, But to quote uh, because I'm worth it. I think there is that element where you've worked hard for eight hours and you feel you deserve some sort of reward. And so actually, you know, flexible working might be rather a gift uh, to a particular category such as yours, which must, I mean, a high degree of it must be to some degree impulsive, I suppose, or at least it's, um, it's discretionary, should we say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in this way, really. But yeah, I guess that's true. I think that as we, so as we evolve into more and more skincare, because we've just, we've only just launched skincare, but makeup and skincare are a little bit different in terms of how consumers interact with them as categories. So it's yeah. going to be really interesting for us to learn how the behaviors shift. So we're, we're just at the beginning of that. So we're, we're watching closely. Any other plans? I mean, uh, any other countries to expand to? I mean, we do sell worldwide already uh, in terms of where we put more effort and, you know, language trans creation and that kind of stuff. Think, I mean, we want to be everywhere. Um, The U.S. is a big focus for us right now. Um, We're already in the U.S. We just recently did a pop up at Saxon, New York, which was really, really successful. So we think there's a really big opportunity there. Um, at the moment, though, our main focus really is about skincare as we've just launched it and we're going to be launching in these chapters over the next little while. Um, so that's that's the main focus. We, but international is is a huge priority. And how can we grow in markets where maybe Trini is not as well known because that still is a thing and that still you know impacts us. Um, so we're thinking about all of this, but uh, it's going to be a very exciting year, I think. It's interesting you called it from the start Trini London. Um, Do you think, uh, I noticed an interesting thing in cosmetics, which is people somehow want to know the country or city of origin. Mm. Um, And London actually, uh, I suppose Rimmel did it as well, didn't they? Uh, Being a London brand. Uh, Do do you see that kind of um, branding? I mean, uh, I suppose London, it's interesting that London probably is perceived 
um, in a slightly more elevated way, actually, by people overseas than it is by yeah. people who actually have to live in the place. Um, yeah. uh, <coughs> was that a very conscious decision? Because I, I do notice this interesting fact that people sort of want to know the nationality of things and the provenance of things. I mean, a total honest answer. This is before my time. Trini, Trini came up with it herself. I have no idea. I, I have never once asked her about it. Um, I think it works. Um, but I, I honestly, unfortunately, yeah, no, I don't. Now I want to call her after this and ask because I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it just interests me because, of course, uh, you know, the impression of places to inhabitants and the, the impression conveyed by places overseas. I've always wondered, you know, we need to spend time discussing what the London brand is and what it means. Yes. And, you know, uh, 20 years ago, it would have been Paris would have been the thing you put on everything or 30 years ago. I just noticed that changing a little bit. No yeah. one would have put New York on a cosmetics brand 30 years ago. True. Yeah. And now they do. It's it's um, it's kind of fascinating. Are there any other sort of lessons you've learned? You know, are there mistakes you've made? I always ask this is that, you know, because we always share our successes and disproportionately bury our failures. Is there anything you've learned in your time there that you go, um, you know, don't try this. I would, you know, I wish I hadn't done it or I learned a lot from this, which is not to try and do it again. Any advice? And, and it can be quite generalized to startups in general, mistakes they can make. So I can tell you a good one, actually. Um, so I used to work at Burberry before I worked at Disney. And so I was really trained on brand at Burberry. It was like that was like the best boot camp you could imagine. So what we were trained on at Burberry was every asset and every tweet should look as good as a spread in Vogue. So I had that way of thinking very much burned into my brain. And so when I came into Trini London, I came in a year and a bit into the company and they were doing a lot of very sort of rough looking content for lack of a better word. Um, you know, Chloe and my team following Trini around with an iPhone and just creating all this sort of rough content. So we tried early on to create some slicker, more professional looking content because I had this Burberry way of working in my head of it all needs to look really slick and amazing. And what I immediately found was that the performance tanked and that people don't want to see overly produced content. They want to see stuff that they can believe in. And it was such an important lesson for me because it totally depends on the brand. And I am the biggest fan of Burberry and how their content looks. But for us, if we try and make content that looks like that, it doesn't work. It's that's that's not what people are looking for. And I think that the opportunity that was created by Trini and by Chloe and the team who were creating all of this content that that I, you know, I say rough in quotes, like it's real is what it is. And so it fits in with other real content from real people that people see. So it doesn't immediately stand out. It's not this jarring contrast. Um so there was some stuff we did that was slicker and frankly more expensive to produce and it tanked. And so um, that was a very important lesson. And whenever I have new people join our team, we just have a brand new creative director. And this is something I'm trying to burn into her brain really fast because naturally everybody joins and they think, oh, we should make really beautiful, slick and produced content. And it's like, well, we need to do it in the way that's right for us because if you go too far with it, it's a mistake. So, yeah, that was, that, that was a lesson. That reminds me of the wonderful story of uh, Jeremy Bullmore always used to show this, which is he showed a little blackboard outside a farm and it says fresh eggs for sale. And it's written in chalk uh, you know, on a blackboard and placed in the, uh, uh, you know, placed in the hedge near to the entrance to the farm. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, it's, it's absolutely perfect 
for conveying the message of selling fresh eggs. In other words, it's home produced, it's authentic, uh, you know, it, it, it's actually, you know, what you might call non-marketing in that that's not, it, it's brilliant marketing precisely because it isn't marketed. And then he shows the same blackboard with the words flying lessons <laughs> written in chalk on a blackboard. And you suddenly realise, you know, no one is going to actually want to buy flying lessons. And that's a distinction. You know, Burberry is very much what you might call flying lessons. Yeah, absolutely. Everything has to be absolutely perfect. You know, you wouldn't go to a flight school where one of the letters had fallen off the side. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, it's a wonderful point because actually creative directors, the danger is always with a creative director that you're kind of judged by a peer group and the peer group admires perfectionism. Yeah. And, the, and certain brands are just more homely and authentic. And also certain media lend themselves to authenticity. Yeah. You know, putting, putting absolutely slick content on TikTok yeah. almost conveys the fact that you don't really get this. Team, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. You know? yeah sure. TikTok's about ingenuity and, you know, YouTube. You know, some of the most watched things on YouTube are actually, uh, you know, surprisingly utilitarian instructions about how to do things. Definitely. And so understanding the mode the consumer's in, but also understanding what's true to the brand is fascinating. But yeah. you do, you do, I noticed you obey quite a few of the Mark Ritson things. You have a clear distinctive colour, for example, in the yellow, which I don't think is owned by anybody else. I'm fairly confident. I mean, there's brands that use yellow. Um, we really try and use it very consistently. And yeah. we are going to have some new products that... Uh, are a little different. So it's like making sure that that yellow doesn't get lost is is going to, as we evolve and as we grow and we add more products, it's going to be, for me, super important to keep everything we do to be consistent and recognizable. Um, and it's very easy sometimes for internal teams to get bored of stuff because they see it 10,000 times a day. And so what I try and tell my team and Trini on a regular basis is like, okay, you, if you're bored of it, that's a good thing because that means somebody who might see it twice will recognize it. So that's something we need to keep going. Mark Ritson tells an exact same story about, I think, Verve Clicquot, okay. where they were starting to get sick of the yellow on the champagne. Mm -hmm. And he said that if you work for Verve Clicquot, you come into work, there's a yellow reception. Uh, by the way, the whole thing emerged by accident. They printed some yellow labels by mistake the English buyer said, can you send us some more of that champagne with the yellow label because it sells really well. And as a, kind of, as a kind of FU, they produced an outrageously yellow label, almost as a kind of slight riposte to this Englishman who'd asked them to send more of the yellow champagne label right, uh, right. product. And so in the end, of course, it was huge. It became distinctive. And as Mark Ritson points out, you can spot it across a crowded bar at 50 yards. Yep. And he said, that the people were asking the same thing. Can we get rid of this yellow, please? And he said, you know, they go into work, their mouse mats yellow. There's, you know, that, yep. you know, they, they go onto their company intranet, and everything's yellow. And yep. they were trying to get away from it. And he said, what you've got to remember is that, you know, you're immersed in this. When yep. it starts to become tiresome to you, that's when it starts to become effective to the consumer. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's the difference between one person being exposed to a thousand something a thousand times and a thousand people being exposed to something once or twice. Yep. Yep. And exactly. uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful piece of advice. Hmm. Any other thoughts? Do you do you have any thoughts about kind of brand balance to go into kind of related areas, or will you stay skincare and cosmetics for now? 
For now, we're doing this. I think mm. long term, I think there will be more verticals from the company, uh, but we're just getting into skincare now. So uh, we've got a lot to do with this. So that's where the focus is at the moment. This is this has been, I have to say, this has been absolutely fantastic. Any, anything else you'd like to share? Um, I mean, uh, you know, is there is there a special offer code you can share to a listeners if you want to? Uh, by, not, I'm afraid. No, we no, nothing. Yeah, so, I, I got nothing. Sorry. So do you do you discount much at all? Or is is it more or less full price? I'd be intrigued to know if you do you hold sales it, it, as an online brand. There's always the dangerous temptation, which is yeah. you can always generate sales through discounting. Uh, what's your approach to pricing? We don't we don't do a lot of discounts on purpose. Um, it's been interesting every year. So the I mean I I don't want to ever commit and say we're going to do it every year, but Cyber Weekend tends to be when you see in in beauty and many categories a lot of discounting. But what we see every year from so many brands is it's like a race to the bottom with the level of discounting, and it almost for me as a consumer with some of the other brands I buy from, I'm like do you actually value your own product? Like they're so discounted. It's like, why would I ever pay full price for this? So, you know, we've done a few cyber weekends where we've done 10% off and people love it, but we don't, I I hope we never get to a point where we're doing the classic e-commerce thing of, of deep discounting on a regular basis, because there really are a lot of brands out there that I would just, I truly would never pay full price on. And I know for me, so I, I earlier in my career, I uh, worked in agencies and Domino's Pizza was a client of mine. And I remember somebody there telling me, you should never, ever pay full price for a Domino's Pizza because the discounting is built into the pricing model. And I never forgot that, you know, and it's for us, that's not the case. We are really proud of the quality of our products and doing deep discounts or, or even super frequent discounting uh, for us is just not the way we want the brand to go. So there are offers we do that are more like a gift with purchase. Um, and we do that sometimes, um, but that gives us an opportunity to add more value to the customer not just say buy this because it's cheap. You know, um, this, is, this is the most extraordinary thing. That, I mean, that um, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that, for example, 50% extra free is more motivating than 33% off. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's vastly less costly to provide. I mean, obviously, there may be a packaging cost. But it strikes me as very weird the extent to which online selling tends to leap towards money off rather than value on. Because I think, although to an economist, they're exactly the same, Mm. okay, to the human brain, they're emphatically not. And again, to quote Jeremy Bullmore, there's a difference between a bribe and a bonus. The way we perceive, you know, effectively... You know, discounting is to some extent a mark of desperation, whereas, uh, you know, an extra free something when you buy something is perceived in a completely different way. That's an act of sort of generosity, if you like, not desperation. But there's added value beyond that for us. So, for example, right now, uh, if you sign up to our email newsletter, you can get a code. So on your first purchase, you get a product called a T-Tone and a T-Tone is a pot with two different types of makeup in it. So yes, you're getting a product that has a value against it that if you paid for it, you'd be spending money on, but also you're trying more products from us. So it acts as a possible incentive to increase lifetime value over time. Because if I try one of the products or both of the products in this pot that you get with two colors in it, and I want to buy it longer term, I then am giving that I'm, I'm 
hoping that the lifetime value of that customer will increase. So yes, they're getting more value on the first conversion, but ultimately what we're trying to do is increase lifetime value. So it serves many purposes. If I just said, okay, take 20% off your first purchase or whatever, it's like, and what, what does that do? It just, in many ways, it might just encourage the kind of customer who's, who's less loyal potentially. So we, we think about this in the long term because conversion is super important to us, but we really want lifetime customers who are going to come back again and again. So that's what we really work on generally. It's very interesting you mentioned the pizza story because there is, you're absolutely right that um, I know somebody who worked for a large pizza delivery company who tried in a test area everyday low pricing where they just said, okay, we'll get rid of all these ridiculous offers and we'll just make the pizzas really cheap to begin with. And it was a complete disaster Mm. because first of all, people perceived the pizzas probably weren't very good. Okay. Yeah. Because they were so cheap, but also the whole category is essentially revolves around gamification. Yeah. That you, you know, you, you, you effectively play chess with the website every time you order. And for some weird reason, people, you know, and this is where actually so much information in marketing is not transferable from one category to another. Mm. Um, uh, there probably is scope for non-discounted pizzas, but it will be at the high end, not at the mass end. Um, yeah. You know, there probably is scope for, you know, everyday high pricing might work actually rather well. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, to what extent do you think, the other question I always ask with online retail is, do you think there's a danger that there's a ceiling Um, And one of the things that does occur to me is that obviously online retailing has grown very, very fast. Mm -hmm. The one thing I do worry about is I argue that we probably in five years time in the UK will need some sort of system like a locker system for collection Mm. where you can consolidate five deliveries in one locker and then go and collect them all at once. Also, I think that actually the cost of delivery to the door is probably well it's probably environmentally unsustainable in the long yes. term it's yeah. unsustainable just in terms of traffic volume but i also think it's sort of cognitively unsustainable in that if you in the run up to christmas you know your front drive effectively turns into a kind of logistics hub for yeah. dhl and you know everybody else yeah uh, and and do you think there probably is for, for the, this is actually interesting because it's a kind of category question not really a, a brand question do you think there's a necessity actually for us to reinvent the delivery system of e-commerce because my concern is that you can still go to blue water and you can buy 20 things from 14 different shops and you put them all in the trunk of your car and you go home yeah. buying actually from different retailers online creates this cognitive load which is has this arrived when is this supposed to be due? Oh my goodness, I need to go out. Uh, you know, you start getting bombarded with your Permis courier will arrive between. Yeah, Do you think there's a, ultimately there's a category problem that needs to be solved with e-commerce, which would benefit all parties? Definitely. I mean, from a sustainability standpoint, first and foremost, I think yeah. this, this will be the hot topic in in retail in general um so yeah i do i don't know what the solution is and certainly as a customer who buys 90 percent of what i buy online you know it's something that i i do think about um but i do think we're going to see a revolution in this space over time but how you're going to have everybody unite i mean i guess in some ways it starts with amazon you know but i, I don't know i think it's i think it's a really interesting topic that needs a lot more attention absolutely yeah, uh, probably in a sense, we're waiting for Amazon to do it. And actually, two problems I think that we face is that, for example, the locker system is much better suited to outside London than it is to London, because when yeah. people travel to work by public transport, 
deviating 500 yards is actually pretty troublesome. Whereas if you drive to work, it adds two minutes to your commute. Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of big city solution, which I think is different. And yeah. also, of course, the US won't pioneer lockers. The places that will pioneer lockers will be Singapore and the Netherlands, yeah. i.e. high density places. I mean, the US isn't particularly well suited being generally a low density country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's something I think we'll probably have to look to other parts of the world to solve rather than big cities or or, or the US, for example. Yeah. But I, I think it is, I mean, in talking to distribution companies, they say, look, actually, you know, let's let's take, you know, McDonald's has, I don't know, what, 1,200 outlets. If you have to deliver to 1,200, 2,000, 5,000 places for a distribution company, that's pretty easy. 22 million households, you know, one delivery to a fairly remote household knocks your driver out of action for, you know, 45 minutes. Yeah. And it yeah. Ultimate, ultimately will need something different. And uh uh, I, th- I think we, we need to we, we need a second Sir Roland Hill to actually work out how this will work, because mm-hmm. at the moment, it's I think it's a bit uns- I, I, I'm personally my one grumble with Amazon is if, I, if I'm ordering a USB cable, could I just pay 50p extra and you put it in the post, you know, mm-hmm. because my yeah. postman's coming anyway. OK, yeah. he knows where my letterbox is. I don't want a van driving to my house to deliver something that weighs 15 grams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there's something there which I think could be really, really interesting. And also, I think some sort of consolidation systems needed yeah. so that you can you can order from five places and get one delivery. I think it's going to be interesting um, as well, though, to think about the impact on brand, because mm. if you start to consolidate things it's like, OK, well, why couldn't you throw it all in one box then? Because And then it's like, well, you're, you know, you're Apple, but and you don't want, you know, other stuff. No, you know? So can... it's like, how do you make that? work and maintain strong brand identity it's it's a really difficult challenge to think about i suppose what we need is the consumer answer to containerization don't we at some level yeah you know because there's also a packaging issue and less so with something you sell which is generally fairly small Mm. but nonetheless there's still there there are quite a few issues there which i think can only be solved at a category level i don't think individual brands even amazon yeah necessarily do that yeah i agree yeah All I can say, Sherry, is that was utterly fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great. A joy. And just as I always give uh, people a plug, the website is uh, trinilondon.com, T-R-I-N-N-Y, london.com. And I can seriously recommend you go there because it's a fantastic site. And um, what what was so interesting is how well the site conveys the brand values that I've, I've heard expressed today. So there we go. I'll give you a free plug. Uh, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit their website, which is alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, the series, as ever, is produced and fantastically edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. I can give a big plug for them. They've been unfailingly good uh, for me on every single podcast I've done. And lastly, to help the algorithm... Uh, To make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then also give us a like. So thank you very much indeed for listening. See you next time. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 